really want to welcome everybody here this morning. Uh, let's go ahead and start with uh, just a short prayer and we'll, we'll get going. God, thank you so much for this time. Uh, God, this is a, a topic that's just uh, such a heart-wrenching topic in so many ways. Uh, and I know many in the room are hurting deeply. And we, uh, God, we, we know that you're a loving God, that you lead us through your spirit. I pray that this morning, as we discuss these things, that uh, you would prick us through your spirit to really help us to know that you're in control, that you love us deeply, and that you are shepherding us through uh, these deep waters. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. I want to introduce ourselves to you guys. Uh, my name is Kurt Woodham. I serve as an elder over on the peninsula side of the Hampton Roads Church. And this is my wife, Ruth. Uh, we will be married about 30 years next year. Mm -hmm. Next wow. year. Yeah. yeah. I, I think I have tenure. So uh, <laughs> it's good. Um, jury's still out a little bit, but uh, I think it's working. Um, you know, the title here is It's Never Over, Bringing Your Child Back to God. Now, I, I do want to let you know on the front end, we had nothing to do with this title. We would not have worded it this way. I don't believe that we bring our children back to God. I think God brings our children back to himself. I think that we welcome our children back to God. And I think that there's things that we can do to create an environment to welcome our children back to God. But this is God's work. So I want to make that clear on the front end. Uh, four years ago, uh, this room was packed, and I was sitting on the floor right about right over there. And we were listening to the Rosenquists and the Sejases talk about uh, their daughters, Amy and Leah, returning back to God. And we were very happy for them. We were joyful for them. But to tell you the truth, it was a very dark time for me because I, I had the feeling... Uh, I'm, I, I rejoice that your children are through this, but I'm in the middle of this, and I don't see a way out. Mm -hmm. And uh, my suspicion is that there's many in this room that feel that way. Mm -hmm. So we're not here to lead you through and say this is how you replicate our experience or anything like that. Mm -hmm. We're here to share our hearts with you, to know that God will work in your lives. Um, Ours is a Cinderella story, and it's extremely humbling to us because it's God's uh, divine will that made it work this way. And we take no credit for it. We love him deeply. Uh, but even if our, our daughter had not come back to Christ at this time yet, we would still love him deeply and trust that he's a good God and that he's leading us through. And uh, that's probably the, the greatest thing that we can share with you um, is you know that that so many are uh, are going through much deeper and more devastating times than ours, but that our prayer is that something in this time will will be helpful to you. Amen. Uh, the overarching theme this morning is that our children are loved deeply by God, a gracious and perfect God, and that He loves us as well. Mm -hmm. We trust His love and His plan for our children as He leads us through and navigates these deep waters. Uh, Hebrews 12 verse 11 says, For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields a perfect fruit, or the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So this is a time of discipline for each one of us. We know that, but you can look forward to even now experiencing the fruit of righteousness as you yield yourself to God. I'm going to turn it over to Ruth, and she's going to share a bit of the background of our story. Mm -hmm. So like Kurt said, we went to the class that the Sejases and the Rosenquist did, and Kathy started out the class by saying that this is a club that nobody wants to be a part of. Right. And I thought that is so apropos, and I thought... Uh, you know, at the time, I felt like, man, if I knew how to get out of this club, I would happily get out of it. And um, so I'm just going to share with you our story about Catherine. And, um, you know, we um, actually raised her in church. We made moves to really help our kids spiritually. And we moved to Virginia Beach to help our kids make it to heaven. And um, she was baptized when she was in eighth grade. But Catherine's... Um, 
makeup was that she was a major people pleaser. And so she shared with me later that even at her baptism, when she was getting ready for it, she thought, what am I doing? You know, why am I doing this? Well, I have to do it because everybody is out there waiting. Yeah. You know, I, I have to go through with this. So from the get-go, it was not a good foundation. And, you know, when by nature you are sweet and compliant, it makes it really hard to be vulnerable and open and transparent. And so thus began her life of deception. And Kurt, he really um, hit it on the head when he would share with what was going on with her. He would say she's got this civil war going on inside of her. She really wanted to please us, but the bottom line was she loved the world. And so just a few months after she got baptized, she really began to struggle. And there were times when she really seemed to be doing better and we'd be so encouraged. But for the most part, her teen years were really tumultuous. It was really hard. And um, I was not great back then at really being open to people's input and listening to what they said and getting advice. I, I definitely felt like, you know, you don't know my daughter. I know my daughter. And I know that even though you're telling me she's lying, there's no way she could be lying. And even though you're saying these things, you don't really know her. Well, I was really wrong. Um, and, you know, I was very, very good at just burying my head in the sand and really refusing to see what was right in front of my nose. And I often said that God had to hit me over the head with a frying pan to get me to wake up and see how my daughter really was drowning spiritually. As she began to make more and more excuses in her senior year of high school, and usually it was excuses to not go to church because she would say she didn't feel well, I could just tell something is not right with her. There is something going on. And so I finally began to really beg that God would show me the truth. I didn't care what it was. I just wanted to know what was going on with my little girl. And I was finally ready for the blinders to come off. And praise God that within just a few months, he did reveal the truth, even though it was extremely hard. Um, she had a boyfriend. She had been drinking a lot, and she had been leading a double life for a really long time. So we kicked it into action. It was the summer of her. She had just graduated from high school, and it was that summer. So we said, no phone, no car, no computer. You can hang out with any disciple that you want, but none of your non-Christian friends, and you definitely cannot hang out with your boyfriend. And so I was advised to really look at the Bible with her every morning, which because she was so compliant and really very sweet-natured for the most part, even though that inner rebellion was constantly going on, she was a very sweet girl. She looked at the Bible with me, but it made no difference because at that point her heart was so hard and she knew the expectation that as long as she was living under our roof she had to go to church and she had to follow our rules so we got on a family vacation that was in August of that summer and it was good it was a good time and then as soon as we came home she said I want to call my boyfriend and I said do you want to be with him still and she said yes and so I said well you can't be with him and live here and so she was going to be 19 in just a couple months, so she was an adult. And so she told me that she was going to move out the next day. Wow. So that's what she did. So her friend came, her girlfriend came and picked, it, picked her up, and that was probably hands down the hardest day yeah. I've ever been through. I'll never forget it. And, um, you know, the day that Catherine left, it was like she had died. And honestly, a part of me died that day, too. And so thus, our journey began. Thanks. So uh, just to fill you in, um, Jimmy Black was on stage last night, and he, he was talking about Ruth inviting Catherine mm -hmm. to this uh, conference four years ago. Mm -hmm. And I should have said earlier, it was the darkest time for me, but it was actually the day after three years mm -hmm. that Catherine started turning around mm -hmm. on October 4th. Uh, four years ago, and then she was baptized on January 25th of the next year. So, and now she and her husband are leading a mission team. So, you know, God. And like I say, it's a Cinderella story. We're we're so humbled by it, and but our hearts to go out to those of you that are in the midst of it. And uh, so, let's turn over to Luke 15. Uh, I know that this is really a story that illustrates the gospel 
but it is a story relevant to our topic this morning here. And so we want to use it kind of as a backdrop to the points that we have. So in Luke 15, starting in verse 11, this is the story of the prodigal son. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I am no longer to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and bring a ring on his and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for the son of, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And, he began, and they began to celebrate. You know, I read a commentary on, on this, this passage, and, and uh, it's interesting. I wanted to see if this was anything that was uh, customary. But it, it was not at all. In that culture, a father was expected to have complete control over his property during his lifetime. And for that reason, the request of the prodigal son was all the more offensive that the father's willingness to comply with the son's request was generous beyond expectation. But then you think about what, what the son went and did. Uh, the Jewish Mishnah was probably being developed about this time, gives this rule. If one assigns in writing his estate to his son to become his after his death, the father cannot sell it since it is conveyed to his son, and the son cannot sell it because it is under the father's control. Even if a father decided to divide up his property among his heirs, neither the father nor the heir could dispose of the property while the father was still alive. So the prodigal son's actions went against all standards, law, and decency. He acted as if his father was already dead. It's just a, such a heart-wrenching story because you, you look at the, the arrogance and the pride and the selfishness of the son. You think, how could he do that? And you may have similar experiences in your own heart of how could they do this to me? Uh, we'll talk about that further of really how our hearts need to be melted. But um, we do have three points that we want to draw from, from here. Uh, I'll tell them to you on the front end. You'll have time to write them down a little bit later as we go through. I'll repeat them. But we're going to talk first about for them to return, they have to leave. The second point is, meanwhile, back on the farm. <laughs> And the third point, third point is, is keeping, white, keeping watch on the horizon. So the first point is for them to return, they have to leave. Now understand the principle for this point. You know, for, for us, with Catherine being 18 and doing the things that she was doing, uh, it meant we had the conviction that she needed to leave our house. We do not mean to imply that to everyone. And uh, you need to get advice in your own situation based on your son or daughter's uh, you know, condition and abilities and things like that. But, but we could not have our house being a refuge for sin. Yeah. And so Ruth talked about that day that we sat down with Catherine. I took away her Blackberry phone, which was a popular phone at the time for kids to have. I went and got her a track phone. I said, you call us. I will pay the first month, but this is on you from then on. I took away her car keys. I said, this car is registered in my name. I know you're driving drunk. I can't have that liability. Wow. You've got your bicycle. 
you've got your friends. She had $500 that was given to her for graduation. We said, of course, that's yours. That was a gift to you from your uncle. Um, if, if you're without a roof over your head and you're in danger, uh, if you're hungry and without food, if you're starving, you call us, you know, let us know. But otherwise, you feel like we were raising you in a bubble. We want to release you from that and yep. let you go experience the world. Heart-wrenching conversation to have. I had a little pendant that had a key on it that she had given me a couple years ago. It was a promise key. Uh, kind of, you know, it was popular among the teen girls at that time to say, give to their father saying, I'm promising purity to you. I gave that back to her at the time. I said, Catherine, this, this really doesn't mean to me now what I think you meant it to mean at the time. I want to give it back to you and you give it back to me when you're ready to make that commitment again. So just heart-wrenching conversation. But we felt like we had to let her go because God had a plan for, for her life. You look at the progression in this story. He commandeered his inheritance, basically saying, Dad, I can't wait for you to die. I want it now. He left with the property. He sold it. He squandered it. When did God act in this story? Then. Then a severe famine arose. There wasn't a famine while he was back on the farm. There wasn't a famine while he still had means and resources. God waited until that timing. And there was no one to bail him out. He was in a far country. He was a foreigner. No one gave him anything. The, the principle of hospitality, which is a very deeply ingrained in Jewish culture, wasn't in that country that he went to. So God commandeered this or, or, or arranged this whole circumstance for him to hit rock bottom, to be feeding pigs. One of the earliest memories I have of my grandparents' farm was this uh, trash can they had out on the porch. I see you nodding your head. <laughs> we didn't use, they didn't use a garbage disposal. There was no such thing. You took the leftover food, you scraped the plates off into this thing. The reason it was outside is because it stunk to high heaven. You took, you know, person stuff. And even 50 years later, that smell still haunts me. But that was like cold stone ice cream to the pigs. You know, it was like, let me at it. You know, they couldn't wait. That's what the, you know, you think of this guy handing out pods to pigs. No, that was not it at all. This was waste. This was stinky, smelly stuff. But that's where he had to go to get rock bottom. This little book called Will God Run, it's a, a book written many years ago uh, by a, a man in the Church of Christ. I just want to um, read part of it to you here. God is a father. It requires a shepherd to seek for lost sheep. It requires a woman to sweep to search for a lost coin. Of course, he's referring to the two previous stories. But the boy knew his way home. He had left on his own volition. He must return as he left. This is called the divine humility of God, the risk of God. God wants, wanted sons, not slaves. He made men, not robots. Men can remain at home or journey off to the far country. He wants men to return of their own volition. All the father can do is suffer and cry and look and wait. There is another great lesson involved which parents should learn. The father let this son fall completely into the hog pen. The father knew about the hog pen. He knew where his son was. He could have done like many modern parents. He could have gone and bailed him out and bailed him out and bailed him out. Parents, if your children have the attitude of the far country, let them fall. It took a hog pen to save this boy. In this respect, thank God for hog pens. The father knew the son had to awaken to what he had done and to what sin was. And he had to stand by and watch his son fall, yea, to the depths of despair. This was the hardest thing a parent will ever do, but it must be done. While feeding hogs, the son came to himself. Thank God for hog pens that bring men to their senses. We'll let Ruth share. All right. So um, when Catherine was a teen, and probably for most of my daughters, it was very hard 
for me to want to see their sin. You know, I, I was raised in the church. I grew up a pretty good girl. And so I just couldn't fathom that one of my own would be so worldly. It was just really, really difficult for me. And, you know, God created us moms to be the nurturers and the protectors of our little ones. And so the term mama bear, you know, comes, comes out. And I think as moms, we can have the attitude, beware anyone who tries to hurt my baby. Yeah, yeah. And I wonder what the mother of the prodigal son was feeling, if there was a mom. You know, when the father gave their son the money, and then when the son set off for a distant country, and the dad didn't stop him. He let him go. And like I said earlier, you know, when women in my life would try to help me see where Catherine was, I just didn't want to hear it. And I was definitely that mama bear who didn't want people challenging my daughter because I felt like they couldn't do it as loving or they just didn't really know her like I did. And I wanted to protect her from the truth and what I thought would hurt her. But what happened instead I enabled her in that refusal to love the truth and so be saved, like it says in 2 Thessalonians 2.10. And I have come to the conviction that we moms especially have got to be willing to let our children suffer. Like Kurt has been talking about, it was only when the son ended up in the pig pen that he began to look up and to see his need for his father. You know, our kids won't see their need as long as we keep it easy for them, and try to keep protecting them from God's discipline. If their friends and teen leaders are challenging them, don't shoot the messenger. Let them be challenged. Because like in the words of Gamaliel in Acts 4.39, if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourself fighting against God. So be grateful. Thank God that there are people, even if they don't do it perfectly, thank God there are people who are willing to speak the truth. You can work through that. You know, them not doing it just right. But don't be afraid to let God speak through people that he puts in their life. Thanks. You know, just as a side note, this principle really um, applies to parenting in general. You know, you've heard of the term helicopter parents before. But the new term around now is lawnmower parent. What's a lawnmower parent? Well, they're the ones that try to mow the path for their child to make the path easy ahead of them. They're the ones that if their child calls them and say, Mom, I left my paper on the counter. Can you please bring it to school? They rush to, you know, to, to make up for it. They're the ones that are trying to make life easy. One of my favorite books is a book called uh, Daring Greatly by a sociologist named Brene Brown. And in, here, in there, she talks about suffering. She talks in one of her TED Talks, I think it was, it's her first child. She held this child and said, you are hardwired for suffering. And it was, a, it was a great insight that we do our children a great disservice when we try to make life easy for them. It's through suffering that they learn. Now, obviously, our point here is at the extreme. But we want to generalize it a little bit and say, look, this is a great parenting thing. Do not protect your children against the consequences of their sin, of their undiscipline. Let them feel the consequences so that they can grow through that. And God himself can teach them the lesson. Acts 17. Here's a familiar verse that we read to our non-Christian friends when we do the what? The Seeking God study, right? So we go when we talk about Paul being in Athens and looking at the the statues around him and then to the unknown God. And we set it up with a great story. So in Acts 17, verse 24, it says, The God who made the world, this is Paul speaking, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man nor served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Sometimes the allotted periods and boundaries are designed by God 
for us to hit rock bottom. And without doing so, as we read a little earlier from uh, the the book uh, by Charles Hodge, uh, we wouldn't come to our senses. It's interesting, Ruth and I sat down with one couple that had a, a, a son that was struggling one time, and and we were talking to them about what we had done with Catherine. And they thought, that's great, but we, we want our child to be in our house for a little longer, get some experience. We want to set them up for success. Yeah. We heard that, and we thought, how do you define success? Yeah. Um, it, it, it floored us. And we talked them through that, no, it's not that you're trying to set your child up for success in the world. You want them to hit rock bottom in the world. You want them to understand the shallowness and the deceit of Satan's lies that he's that he's given to their uh, into their lives. Um, so that was point number one for them to return. They have to leave. And again, get lots of advice, lots of prayer. Yeah. Talk to the elders and the, and the other uh, members of your congregation that have experienced this. This is not a carte blanche suggestion by any stretch. Are we, are we good there? Yeah. Okay, good. All right. Secondly, meanwhile, back on the farm. The point here is life goes on, doesn't it? It sure does. Yeah, you got to get back to uh, your lives. You have to live your lives. Yeah. And we want to talk for a little while of what that looks like. First of all, we really feel that you have to address the grief. Yeah. Grief is the loss of something dear. And that can take many forms. It's not just the loss of, of a loved one in death. It's a loss of a dear loved one in their faithfulness. Uh, it it's, can be many, many different losses. Um, we really encourage you to look at the resources you have available in your congregation or, or even in, in counseling. As a starting point, this is an excellent little book, Good Grief. Uh, the last thing you need when you're grieving is a 900-page tome of knowledge that takes you three months to plow through. Yeah. This, this takes you a little over an hour to read, yeah. and it just provides a framework for you to really start on that path. Strongly suggest it. Ruth is going to talk more about how to address grief. Yeah. I mean, I don't really even need to tell you how hard it is when your kid walks away from God, even when... We are asked to do parenting classes. It brings up so many emotions because it was the hardest time of my life. You know, after she left, I prayed a lot. I journaled more than I ever had before, and I cried so much daily. You know, it's really normal for a parent to grieve when their child runs away. And grieving is part of the journey. And until you grieve, you can't really begin to heal and be the changed person that you want to be. It's so crucial that you take that time to be sad. And Paul says um, of the church in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty nine, who is weak and I do not feel weak, who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn. How much more so for our own kids do we feel weak and inwardly burn when they walk away from God? It was um, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. And then Ecclesiastes 3, verse 4, says there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. And you really can't hurry grief. And I think it's so important that you don't feel guilty for this time. It may take some longer than others, depending on your ability to really work through it and your emotional strength. You know, it is a very hard time. And... um you know, the laughing and the dancing will come, but only after you let yourself weep and mourn for a while. And I'm going to share later on really how I got through my grief and some things that really helped me. I'll share that in a few minutes. So I want to talk to you about something that accompanies grief often, and that's the concept of shame. And probably there's many of you in the audience that are feeling a level of shame deeply. And we want to try to help you with that. But again, this is a concept that really takes some deep, deep assistance, maybe some counseling to work through. There was a time in our movement where we assigned blame for a wayward son or daughter to some deficiency in the parenting. Uh, This was due to misapplications of scriptures like Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. 
And so if there was a son or daughter departing from the faith, the obvious conclusion was that there was something wrong with your parenting. And there was shame attached. Want to help you understand something. The Proverbs are principles. They aren't promises. If you look a little later in that passage, you would see like verse 29. I just picked out one. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. Is that a promise of God? That if you have skill, that you will stand before a king? No, it's a principle. It's a principle that if you're skilled and apply your skill, your work will be noticed. Verse 6 is a principle that if you chain up a child in the way that they should go, if you, if you look at their talents and you urge them to, to live wisely and with integrity and discipline, they will carry aspects of that into their lives. This isn't a, a promise of God that if you raise them in the church that they are going to stay faithful. Right. Let's understand, Proverbs are principles. This verse has hurt many, many deeply and has been the cause of much shame. So we're not saying that you don't need to acknowledge deficiencies in in your parenting. But show me the perfect parent. (laughs) You know, I look at a perfect father in a perfect garden. And Adam and Eve still chose to sin, didn't they? Any deficiency in the parenting of our Father in Heaven? No. Adam and Eve had free will, and their choice was their own. Satan has a heyday when we feel that shame. And again, I really feel that that we need to address that. It's a deep topic. Please find help to overcome that. Feel the confidence and the, the love of God. Feel knowing that He's leading you through this. Yes, he's revealing sin, but as far as east is from the west, God separates us from the sin in our lives. That we are new day by day. Second Corinthians 5 says, you are a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Live that way. Address the sin, certainly. But there is no room for shame. It is not what God uses. You are God's son or daughter. He wants you to feel his love and compassion. Uh, Again, addressing sin in our lives. But God draws us to him through irresistible love, not through shame. Life goes on. Life has to go on. We have to make the decision to live joyful, faithful lives, to continue to be giving and to be growing. There will be that ache in your heart. You will tire easily. More more easily than before. And it's not just due to age. It's the burden that you're carrying as you struggle to be giving. But the alternative is unthinkable for a Christian. The Lord promised you abundant life in John 10.10. Even in the midst of difficult times. In fact, some of our most amazing, giving, sacrificial friends uh, have unfaithful children that have been unfaithful for many years. But they continue, the parents continue to be loving and serving and giving. Okay, so this is how I got through my grief after a few months, you know, um, of really being sad. And that was very out of character for me because by nature I am a very positive, happy, easygoing person. I call those days my dark days. I was just depressed for a few months. And it was like this dark cloud was looming over me everywhere I went, this knowledge that my daughter wasn't going to go to heaven, you know, that she was not doing well spiritually. And I just could not shake it. And so, like I said, I prayed a lot. I journaled a lot. I cried a lot. And after about five months, it was from August to December, maybe it was the beginning of a new year, I don't know, but come January, I just decided I am done being sad. I can't live like this anymore. It was just, it was too hard. And so I really made some life-changing decisions for me. From here on out, I decided I was done worrying about her because she wasn't living at home. I really, we texted occasionally. We were mending our friendship. You know, I really didn't know what was going on with her, but I just decided I'm done. I can't live in constant worry 
of what if, what's going to happen to her. Yeah. I can't live like that. And really, I just decided I'm done with worry in every area of my life. I am not going to worry anymore. <laughs> I just made that decision. And I decided that I was going to replace it with the command in Philippians to rejoice always and to not be anxious about anything. I figured that if God commanded this, he was not teasing us. It really was possible. And I needed just to repent and be obedient to it and decide to be joyful. And um, along with being joyful, I decided I am going to serve other people like crazy. I'm going to, if there is a need, I want to meet it. I'm just going to try to focus on other people. And lastly, I decided that this was not going to consume my life anymore. This did not define me. You know, I was not a mom of a fallen away daughter. I was so much more than that. Amen. And I decided that I was going to live my life for God and get beyond this, you know, get over this hump and really start serving God in the way that I needed to. I think that was the time... For me to so quit. Your, your time's over. No, okay. no, no. <laughs> that part. Either that or the microwave's done. <laughs> um, just such a tremendous topic, and really uh, encourage you to to uh, to to move out of that darkness, move out of that that the the the, the grieving, uh, and pull into okay, life moves on. Ephesians six twelve says our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And that's, you have to take that verse in, in, into account in two ways. Your struggle is not with your child. Your struggle is with the Satan, the thief in John 10, 10, that comes to steal and kill and destroy. That's who your struggle is with. They happen to have your son or daughter in their throes. Yeah. Recognize that because your son or daughter are going to say things yeah. that will hurt you deeply. Oh, but yeah. you recognize, mm -hmm. I'm dealing with Satan wow. that, is, that, is, that has them in their grasp. Yeah. And out of deep love and compassion, I'm going to uh, address this this way yeah. or with that in mind. And then you have to recognize that Satan is really going to go after you as well. Yeah. Yeah. And so that spiritual battle... Don't give in to the emotions. Don't give in to the feelings. But recognize God is in control and he loves you deeply. And to, to really grasp onto that power. Um, let's see. I want to try to fast forward a little bit. That, that this, pardon? That wasn't an end You have 20 more minutes. Oh, cool. 20 more minutes. All right. Well, we stand between you guys and lunch. So we just... <laughs> We better, we better boogie here. Um, uh, so, so as part of learning to, to, to move forward in life, it's not just existing and moving forward. There's a deeper side of this, and this is really what we want to finish out this point with, is learn the lesson that God is trying to teach you specifically. This isn't all about your son or daughter. It's also about you. God has allowed you to be in this situation for a reason. And he is a loving God with infinite love and compassion towards you. He's placed you there uh, to, to help you to grow and to learn and to learn about him. Oh, okay. I think it's interesting because Lillian is in the room and she was one of the ones, I'll never forget, we were in fellowship and she was telling me, you really have to accept Catherine. You just have to accept where she is. And I would think, I can't, I cannot do that. But she was right. And I, that was probably one of the hardest things for me to learn, was learning how to accept her life and the decisions that she was making along the way, which I so did not agree with them, but I had to learn how to love her and accept her where she was. A, a huge step for me was embracing her boyfriend. So she had been on and off with him for three years, and I just, you know, I had seen him. I was always very warm when I did see him but I just did not want to fully embrace him. And so after a lot of advice, we finally decided let's have him in our home. So we did a couple times. He came over as we had some interns, campus interns over for a barbecue. I said, let's get him over for that. You know, so they came for that. And then we had a family dinner and it was so interesting because I asked Catherine a few weeks later, do you want to 
you know, we're going to have a family dinner. Do you want to ask Peter? And she said, no, let's just have it be the family. And amazingly, right after that, she broke up with him. And <laughs> who knows? I don't know God and his ways, but maybe he was just waiting for me to learn how to love unconditionally yeah. before Catherine could let him go. I don't know, but I did need to learn that lesson. And I needed to learn how to replace my anger, which was so strong in the beginning, with love and compassion. And really to this day, I still pray for her boyfriend. I still want him to know God. You know, and I learned that God's ways are always better than mine. After she left our home, I started begging God, please let her come back in a year to the day that she left. I think she left on August 12th. Mm -hmm. I wanted her to come back the following year by August 12th. Well, that day came and went, and she did not come back. And so what it taught me was that God's ways are perfect. His timing is always perfect. He brought her back at the exact moment that he had planned before the creation of the world. In Psalms 139.16, it says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So he knew exactly what she would have to go through in order to come back to him. And really in believing that I had to surrender everything. It was really hard after that year when she didn't come back because I really had put my faith in that. But I just had to surrender. And I began to understand that only God can grant repentance. All I can do is enjoy the ride and wait for him to change her heart. And that she had to go through all the hard things that life brings when you're fighting against him. It's never easy when you're fighting against God. You're his enemy. He doesn't make it easy. But I could not allow myself. I just couldn't go in the thinking that she was not going to come back. I know they have free will. I know that they may not. But I just couldn't go there. I thought, no. She is going to come back to God. I don't know when. It could be when I'm 80. I might die and go to heaven and see her then. But I had to believe that she was going to come back. And I begged God to spare her life long enough so that she could knew him. I knew as long as she had breath in her body, there was hope for her to come back. And that also knowing that no matter what the outcome was, I was going to hold on to the fact that God was always good and he's always right. I think for me, the lesson that God was teaching me is that he is in control. Uh, I took a verse like Philippians 4, 7, rejoice in the, or 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your reasonable, reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. And we're, you know, a phrase or a, a passage that kind of rolls off our lips. We've used that for many, many years. But to go back and say, how do I hold on to this? How do I dig into this, dig my claws into this passage and really put it into my life? He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The, the word uh, reasonableness is ep, uh, uh, epiicus, uh, which comes from two words. Epi is above or upon, and icus is a, is a form of icon, uh, image. So above image. <laughs> So really the, the idea was that, that this is God's gentleness. This is God's reasonableness. This is a godly characteristic. It's, it's God's manner, his attribute. And so I understood that I needed to show gentleness and compassion and reasonableness to my daughter. I needed to reflect God's character to her. And even something like the Lord is at hand. I had read that for many years as the idea of no, the Lord's coming soon. The Lord's at hand. The time is at hand. No, the Lord is at hand, which means he's, he's there. He's right there with you. And just that idea of practicing God's presence, knowing that he's with me during these times and I'm not alone in them. So that was our second point. Meanwhile, back on the farm. Our third and final point is keep your eye on the horizon. First thing you do you have to do is keep hope alive. I think Ruth talked about that a little bit. I think she's got a little bit more to share on that. Yeah, yeah right after Catherine had moved out, we had a great big statewide service and a sister shared something with me that she shared a scripture that became my theme verse. It's in Romans 4, verses 17 through 21. It says, as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, talking to Abraham. 
He is our Father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations, just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had the power to do what he had promised. Abraham became my hero. You know, you look at against all odds, God tells them they're going to have a child. And it says that her Sarah's womb was dead. Well, to me, my daughter was dead spiritually. Yeah. And I had to cling to the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. I believe, okay, she is not saved, but I was not going to let Satan steal my hope that she would be one day. I made the decision to be fully persuaded that God has the power to bring her back to life. And I really believed he would do it. I knew that it, you know, it may not happen in my own time, but it would happen. And I love in verse um, Romans 5, 5, the very next chapter where it talks about the hope that will not disappoint us. And I decided to hold on to that hope and not be disappointed, but believe that God was going to do what he could do, you know, and pray that he would do it. Amen. We're going to fast forward a little bit to uh, get you guys out of here. Uh, but uh, uh, I hope this has been really helpful. The, the last thing we want to talk about with respect to keeping your eye on the horizon is that you have to nurture compassion. Mm-hmm. You know, we talked earlier about God's timing and keep uh, in bringing the child, the son, to the feeding of the pigs and to coming to his senses. But there may very well have been God's timing with the father as well. That the first day that he saw his son walk off with, since he was a younger son, roughly a third of the lifeblood of, of the father, uh, all of you know, his sweat uh, and, and all that he had done for the years to build up this, this, uh, uh, this estate, to watch a third of it walk away with two-thirds reserved for the older son, I would be bitter. I would be resentful. I would feel good riddance. Mm -hmm. But when the son came back, the father wasn't there. So what do you have to say for yourself? Mm -hmm. Or he didn't say, well, 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 look who's come crawling back. I told you he'd be back, mother. Uh, It wasn't that. He was watching the horizon. As soon as he saw his son, what did he do? He ran. Now, this, this was not uh, appropriate for an older gentleman to do. To pull up, you know, his robe and to run towards his son. It was demeaning. It was beneath him. Mm-hmm. But this, the, the, the emotion and compassion that he felt as he came up to this dirty, smelly, uh, torn, uh, gaunt child just the incredible compassion that he felt. We have to nurture that and we have to work through whatever we need to work through in God's plan to to come to that point of compassion. Let's kind of condense it a little bit. All right. So, you know, like I've said earlier, I just felt like I made so many mistakes with my daughter. I really didn't know how to draw out her heart. I didn't allow her the freedom to really share her heart and her feelings about God. I'm sure she felt a lot of judgment from me and I often reacted out of fear and the thought that my daughter wouldn't want what I want for her spiritually it just really scared me you know so God taught me how to love her in the way that she needed to be loved do you want me to read this okay is that good that's fine with me okay yeah cool it's good stuff if you want to read it (laughs) afterwards come up and So we had three points. And I'm just going to finish this sure, off go here, okay? mm-hmm. um, Three points for them to return. They have to leave. Meanwhile, back on the farm, you have to understand that life goes on. You need to thrive and grow and learn the lesson God has for you. 
And you have to keep your eye on the horizon. Come to that point of compassion, looking, watching for God to bring about the circumstances for their return and have that compassion. Mm-hmm. What we want to close out with is just, a, just an overarching point. You need to live out the gospel. We, we made the point on the front end that this is really about the, uh, the, the gospel, that this is a story about the gospel, but really it's, uh, it's a story for each one of us. Yeah. Ephesians 2, 1, for 7, 1 through 7. I want you to listen to this with the picture painted in your mind of the story we just read in Luke 15. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once lived in the passion of our flesh, carrying out the desire of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Doesn't that just reflect that same story perfectly in our lives? You have lived out Luke 15 in your life. Each of us has squandered the precious lives that God gave us, used our talents and passion to serve ourselves. Each of us had a coming to ourselves moment. What am I doing? The message of the cross became even more unbelievable at that time, that God was so rich in mercy, accepts me through Christ as an adopted son or daughter into his family and has blessed us even after our rebellion with a glorious inheritance. When our lives are filled with sin and we give no thought to God at all, will God still own us as his own? Does he love us when when we fall? When our backs are on him, when our backs on him are turned and we seek to go our selfish way, will God forgive us of it all? Does he care when we go astray? No matter how wicked we may be, God loves us with a love unfeigned. He loves us in spite of all we do, even though he's deeply grieved and pained. No matter how far we choose to go, he looks and waits for our return. He patiently waits with outstretched arm, for our well-being is his great concern. He's ever willing to receive us back. Regardless of the things we've done, he's watched down that lonesome road, eager to exclaim, welcome home, my son. We scarce can understand at all how loving and forgiving God can be, but his amazing grace is always there that we, his forgiveness, might receive. Amazing grace, how wonderful it is to have a father who loves us so. He'll claim us as his very own, if only back to him we'll go. He loved us more than we can ever know, And once that trip back home's begun, he'll rush to greet us on our way. He will run. Yes, God will even run. Thanks for your time.